Welcome everybody to the Help Me at Displeasure podcast. I'm so excited for many reasons about this discussion today. First of all, being we're actually being able to do this face-to-face, which is amazing. Um, but we are really going to be digging into some really, really intimate topics, really answering some of your really important questions. And I'm excited to bring to you Suzanne Shah. Hello. Women's Health Physio. Yes. Um, it's really cool to have you with us today and talking about some of these topics because I just feel like some of these topics are a bit taboo. It's not something that we can really bring up comfortably to practitioners. Um, and I know from a lot of my one-to-one work that some of these issues are things that people got burning questions about but just don't feel confident to ask. So we thought between us, if we bring all these questions to you, I hope it'll open up some discussion and just be able to guide some of you in your consultations with other health professionals and um, with your physios um, and just, yeah, be able to open up that conversation. So we're here to talk topic number one about pudendal neuralgia. Let's just open up that topic, your experience with women's health, how you know about pudendal neuralgia, mm-hmm. and then we'll kind of start talking about how it relates to hips. Okay, so um, obviously like yourself, Laura, my background has mainly been within like musculoskeletal physiotherapy and um, I think it's probably been about, yeah, 10 years now I went pretty much straight into that and it's only really now since being more in primary care working alongside uh, in the GP surgeries that I then became a lot more interested in women's health because I was finding that I'm seeing now quite a broad range of uh, pathologies that are coming through and conditions that are coming through and I was getting a lot of women around sort of particularly around menopause age that had these really random joint pains they couldn't really pinpoint it they'd had every single test under the sun and I'd be sitting there thinking what do we do like where do we go from here sort of thing we've been through physio and so actually I then decided to look more initially into like menopause and women's health so I focused more on that initially um, and then more of late I've been focusing a bit more on like postnatal as well so um, but yeah, I really enjoy it. I think there's not, I think in Norfolk in particular, there's not, there's not lots of it. I know there's certain areas it's becoming perhaps a little bit more popular since there's been a lot more sort of push for menopause training and things like that with different health professionals. But I think as well then from speaking to colleagues that also work in primary care is there's a lot that we just don't know. And uh, agreed. Yeah. And there's just so many, I think there's just so many women that still I question now there are so many women that get diagnosed with things like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome and I'm sitting there thinking is it that or is it actually menopause and because when we look at intermenopause and women's health and all of the problems that can come with it it's huge there's such a scope so so yeah so that was why I then got into women's health a long story short but that's how I got into women's health and so now I do I still do musculoskeletal like mm-hmm. myself um, but uh, I focus a little bit more, I prefer to do that with health because I just have much more of an interest in it. And when you mentioned about the pudendal neuralgia, um, it's definitely something that from chatting to colleagues, it's not widely talked about, but I think it depends where your practice is, depending on how much time you have. And it's just quite a complex, it's quite a complex condition. So um, it's not always explored, I don't think. Um, so much within certain teams if the, if the time you have is a bit less yeah so, so I mean I just want to be upfront with everybody and say that um, before I started working closely with people that had had some of these hip surgeries I had never even heard of pudendal neurologist so I want to just make anyone that's watching this feel a bit more comfortable if you've not heard of it 
if you don't know what questions to ask um, because I didn't know about it until I started working one-to-ones and heard about it wanted to know a little bit more about it mm. because it's coming up more and more yeah and I just think how many people are having symptoms and just not being confident to talk about it so let's dig in yeah what is pudendal neuralgia so pudendal neuralgia so it's a neuropathic condition that affects predominantly around the pelvic floor mm. so there are basically a, a three different functions and it serves different areas of the pelvic floor uh you've got basically three different branches one goes to clitoris and if you're a male it goes to your penis you've got another branch that will go to your pelvic floor muscles and then you have another branch that goes to your anus so they all serve different functions mm -hmm. and so that's why they can like present in a wide range of symptoms so for some women they might have as I think we discussed earlier they might have a little bit of numbness around the clitoris you might have other women that get severe pain with sex intercourse around their pelvic floor um and you know the same as well I suppose around your anus if you have any loss of sensation around there it can present anywhere pretty much around that area mm -hmm. so yeah, it's a neuropathic condition and it will typically present with a few symptoms. So like sharp, you know, when we screen, we, we check for sharp shooting pains, tingling, numbness, um, all of those types of, I suppose, clinical presentation really. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's effectively trying to summarise quite a complex thing. That is what potential neuralgia is. It's in summary. Okay. Um, so... I mean, when, if I was if I was asking this with absolutely no knowledge at all, I'd be like, okay, well, where does it where does it come from? What causes it? And I'm gonna I'll talk a little bit about hip stuff in a moment, but mm -hmm. um, because this is gonna cross over with other conditions, yeah. um, and you know there are people that are gonna be having hip surgeries that have been through menopause or going through menopause or perimenopause or, or have had children and having other kind of pelvic floor women's health type issues so I just want to briefly cover other reasons that you can get pudendal neuralgia other mm -hmm. than the hip stuff that we're going to talk about in a second. Yes yeah so obviously so it, it basically comes from the pudendal nerve comes from the lower part of the back so it's from S2, S3, S4 and for anyone that doesn't know your anatomy uh, it's basically the real lower part around the US USA, <laughs> as Laura's showed <laughs> there. Um, so it arises from that level, and basically, like I say, it goes up into three different branches, so it's different parts to the pelvic floor. Now, um, there's lots of things that can cause problems with it. It's typically known to be a problem with cyclists because that's sitting. Oh <laughs> <laughs> so um and it could just be a little bit of a, a temporary irritation but obviously we're thinking more for like the longer term aren't we the people mm -hmm. that end up that are having it for a bit bit longer but that is a really big comparison to make because mm -hmm. if there are any people that like to cycle and I know there's a big part of the hip community that does because it's a non-impact sport mm -hmm. and there's a lot of lot of us that are cyclists that feeling that temporary numbness that kind of um ischemic kind of feeling that you can have I suppose is something perhaps to relate it to yeah definitely definitely and I think as well, like, um, I'm, you know, I suppose the ones we, we want, I don't see necessarily the people that you see because we're slightly different in our practice. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the common things that it can be associated with. But I suppose like any nerve condition that we see, even if it's musculoskeletal, the things that can irritate nerve are, um, I suppose, if you have any compression around the nerves. So um, that can be from position so for example repeated squats or mm -hmm. somebody is in a deep seated position for a while even that can sometimes trigger it 
Um, I suppose for more from my side, which I tend to see a little bit more of as postnatal, because obviously that second stage of labour as mm -hmm. the compression and obviously the trauma that can happen around there, that can cause it. Um, trauma, again, is another area that can affect it, it's another reason. Um, and obviously surgery, which is probably where your patients probably would like to come a little bit more in, maybe. Um, and obviously any dysfunction to the hip, pelvis, um, and actually... From, you know, researching a little bit more into it, there's a lot about biomechanics and actually with these types of patients, not just looking at the symptoms they get, but what's the cause? Like that's the main thing. It's exactly. like, like that's the cause and it's why. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of like the hip stuff, um, mm. when we're talking about why the people with hip dysplasia get pugenital neuralgia, um, so obviously spent a lot more time over the last couple of years looking into this a little bit more and it's it's really more to do with the hip arthroscopies that are happening to, more than the peers or the hip replacements that are happening um, and there's a reason for that so when you have an arthroscopy um, so this might be for if you've got cartilage issues you've got a torn labrum you've got um, femoral acetabular impingement when they put you on the table to do it they have to create some traction between the ball and the socket to be able to create the room to get in there to do the work they need to do. So when they put you on the table, there is this thing called a perineal post. Again, didn't even know that existed. I haven't had an arthroscopy myself. I've had the PAO, but I haven't had an arthroscopy. So um, I didn't have that personal experience. But you look into it and there's this big bolster thing. It's about this big. Um, and they pop it between your legs and they basically put your foot in a boot and they traction. Um, to be able to create that distance between the ball and the socket. Um, now, when they do that, obviously, that's putting a lot of pressure in your groin to the post mm. that's, that's being put there. And obviously, it's a prolonged period of time yeah. that that compression is there for. Mm. Um, and sometimes they have to put quite a bit of traction on to be able to get mm. that that pull from the from the ball and the socket. So there's research that we'll go into talking about a little bit further down the line. But why... I wanted to make sure that people were aware that it's that surgery in particular is so that we can open up that conversation with our consultants, with our physios to know that it's even a risk. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's not a really it's not a really common thing. I want to stress that, that that's really important. And some of the stats and stuff from the research that I've been reading says that it happens in 1.8 to 4.3, varying on which study you read, yeah. um, of people that are having pudendal issues afterwards. So whilst that doesn't seem like a huge amount, if it's the, if it's you that it's affecting, it's going to feel pretty significant. I want to stress that all the research that I've read about pudendal neuralgia with after hip arthroscopies, it's all gone within six to twelve weeks. Mm, okay. So that is super good to know. Um, I haven't found any cases at the moment, and you might say differently. Um, that have gone on for longer than 12 weeks after hip arthroscopy. Mm. Um, so that's a very small, specific subgroup. Yeah. Now, there are other issues, like we've talked about with your women's health and your practice, that yeah. will probably go on for significantly longer than that. Yeah. Um, so if you are coming at this from a point of view where you've had your surgeries and you've perhaps had a child mm. and you're potentially in menopause and there's all these other things potentially going on at the same time you could potentially have continuation but it might not necessarily be the same thing that's causing it right there's so many different things that could be um coming into place so just wanted to kind of reassure you that if it's just from that perspective I haven't found any evidence that it should carry on for longer than 12 weeks so we can reduce our 
anxiety perhaps just a little bit. So we've just mentioned a few other things that might be drawn into pudendal neuralgia, lots of different reasons so far, but that's coming from my perspective and um, I want to just invite you into that question. Is there anything else yeah. that you think might be a factor to consider? Definitely. So other things that can draw into it. So we mentioned briefly a little bit about menopause mm -hmm. and obviously that's a huge subject um that's yeah we could talk about that well I could talk about that yeah so um but obviously menopause in itself so just sort of really briefly the when your estrogen levels drop your inflammatory markers will increase so it's quite common for um particularly the women that we see in clinic that they their symptoms might be on a little bit longer mm -hmm. I don't know if there is any studies in particular that just focuses on women that have had hip arthroscopies around a certain age to see if that recovery time is <laughs> a little bit longer. But if it is, I think the main thing is don't be alarmed because, mm -hmm. like I said, there's other things that can, can feed into that. Um, and yes, yeah, so menopause being one of them. It's not just that we see estrogen acts to help to lubricate your joints. Mm -hmm. So if that's lowered and you're not taking any hormone replacement therapy, you might find that actually your joints feel a little bit stiffer. They might take a little bit longer or need a little bit extra work. So I think that's where I think you're, we were saying we're quite similar in our approach. Mm -hmm. Very holistic. We tend to look at like a really wide picture. Sometimes probably too wide. But um, <laughs> the amount of time we have. Exactly. It's just probably something that you're going to talk about in a second anyway. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that's where, yeah, it's really important to just take into effect, you know, all those different factors that, that can come part to play. And um, sleep, depression, anxiety, that can all ramp up the inflammatory system. So again, like I always ask about sleep, you probably do as well, how to sleep and what sort of things can you sort of control? Because you might come at it then from a few different angles rather than yeah. just like getting moving and strengthening. Yeah. Exactly, because in, in our job, we we might have 10 people come in with the same symptoms right but we would treat them completely differently based on who they are what their lifestyle is like their personality like everything about them so you can have so many people come in with the same thing and your plan would be very different so that's again taking a holistic approach and looking at a person rather than a condition definitely so all of those things are so so important yeah um but we did mention about sort of time and appointments and i do kind of want to come into that a little bit because these these topics can be a little bit more taboo and um, people don't necessarily feel as comfortable to, to talk about these things um, unless you're asked directly you know do we bring up all of these things about our internet areas if we're not entirely sure about what's going on whether it's the right thing to bring up whether it's appropriate to bring up you know all of these questions and all of these hesitancies for advocating for our own health um, so in our situation, like we won't make a point of asking these things, mm -hmm. but there are unfortunately there's not always the time in certain situations in certain clinical environments to go into all those details. So we want to advocate again for people to just be able to understand it a little bit more, be able to ask those questions in your appointments and just feel like you can yeah advocate for yourself a little bit more. Yeah. Because again, if you've got somebody, let's you know, take the NHS into consideration here, you know, it's we don't have the time, unfortunately, to spend as much time, energy, money on everything that we want to. The resources yeah. just aren't there. And, you know, it's not to say that the people that you're seeing, the clin clinicians that you're seeing aren't caring, that they don't want to know about all this stuff. But that's, again, where the advocacy comes in, because if you're aware of it and you ask, they will make the time for you. But if you don't ask and they've got a list of like, you know, hundreds of people to see in a day, um, 
you know, they might not get around to asking those things. So I think it's important to have as much knowledge and awareness before you go into these appointments mm -hmm. as you possibly can. Definitely. And, you know, thinking about that and as well, like, so um, I do work in the NHS. So, and I get 20 minutes for my appointments. So, like I say, you know, and that's not just um, sitting and talking with somebody and I suppose doing their assessment as such. It's everything. It's your notes, it's your checking for imaging, it's calling people to talk about their imaging, it's if you need to speak to the GPs, it's all your tasks that come through. So, it is a lot, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. to, and I, I know that definitely I can't be as. Um, as as holistic in my NHS practice in 20 minutes than I can obviously in half an hour privately because you can just explore much more when you're private so um I think as well the other thing you mentioned like people don't always like to mention these things yeah, yeah. and honestly even in pelvic health assessments that I, I do with women they come in they know what we're there to talk about so but they still never talk about their sex life. I very rarely really? have women that will just come out with it. I normally have to sort of probe questions and say, so, you know, how is sex? Do you get any pain when having sex? Some women are still, you know, understandably, um, feel quite private and don't want to talk about it. But I think that probably is it's an important thing to talk about mm -hmm. because there are lots of things, you know, that can be done to help with it. Absolutely, if they want to. Um, so yeah, so even with pelvic health, like musculoskeletal, it's not something that I would ask, to be honest, in musculoskeletal. There's other different questions that I might be more guided to. Um, however, pelvic health, I tend to ask about it, but still, yeah, I, the amount of women that are shocked when you ask them that question. Um, and I think that's, that's probably partly why it doesn't get recognised as much, because you know, people don't always think to talk about it. So should we open it up? Yeah. And um, so questions about sex and pudendalneuralgia, right? So yeah. if you've had a surgery, any other of these issues that we talked about that might have caused you to have alterations in your intimate life, intimate areas, mm. should we be having sex? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends from person to person and on the cord. That's a very open question. I know. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose, yeah, it's very dependent, isn't it, on the patient and how... I suppose you go through all things like irritability and how because if it's loss of sensation that might be a little bit easier to work with in a sense mm -hmm. on the psychological side than somebody who gets really severe pain because they're probably less likely they're going to be wanting to perhaps avoid those certain things yeah something as well to to think about is like position so we know with yeah. the pudendal nerve that if you're in a sitting or a flexed position that it puts more compression through it it can put more stress through it and nerves don't have to be stretched and they don't have to be compressed mm -hmm. so it might be something really simple to say well actually have you tried a different position that may mean that you're not putting so much stress through that nerve yeah um and also you know using things like sex toys mm -hmm. um and i suppose with even just the sensory stimulation that you can get from that yeah um and particularly if somebody has pain within women's health we have things like dilators which can gradually help i suppose a really hypertonic so a really tight pelvic floor yeah. muscle um they can help with that so there are lots of different ways around it i think it's just having those conversations rather than sometimes we put things in the closet we try and just ignore them <laughs> don't we and we think oh if i don't do anything it might just go away it might just settle in time if it doesn't then you know these are conversations that in pelvic health we have 
a lot. We yeah. always ask about it. It's not uncommon for women to get these symptoms. Um, yeah, and you know, I think we'll chat a little bit more into like pelvic health and as perhaps as to why you know sometimes these things aren't noticed, and that mm. might just be also due to pelvic health professionals, physios, whether we know to question into it a bit more. So. Okay. Well, like I said, I didn't even know that it existed right a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, we've been qualified quite some time ago. Yeah. Um, so you know, every every practitioner has their own niche area, their own yeah. area of specialty and interest, and it's about sort of maybe having the time to be able to find one that is in the area that you want. But yeah, it's it's something like I said to open up the topic about and just know that if you've got any questions after watching this and you have them and you want to send them through, then you're very, very welcome to, to do that. Okay, so we've talked about sex as a form of stimulation that can either potentially be useful or harmful, depending mm -hmm. on whether we're over or under-stimulated as a result of the damage that's potentially happened. Um, so there are surely other things that we can consider doing. Um, is there any other exercises, massage techniques, anything else that you can think of that might be useful for somebody who's struggling with congenital massage? Definitely. So, um, so I think the main thing is again, it's drawing back to what they're presenting with. Mm -hmm. So, I suppose in the pelvic floor, you can, and particularly when nerves are involved, you can have loss of sensation. You yeah. can have like hypersensitivity. So it's trying to work out which one it is. Um, and also, even the you know, if somebody's getting pain, it depends as well what area. So if it's more around the clitoris, then you'll perhaps focus treatment a little bit yeah. around there. If it's more the pelvic floor muscles themselves, um, then you would perhaps you would do sort of like an internal assessment to try to work out whether uh, the pelvic floor is what we call hypertonic. So whether those muscles have too much activity mm -hmm. or too little, because we know the pudendal nerve has a motor function as well, which means it controls the muscles, it has a muscular function. Um, and so that's where we would basically focus it focus it on depending on what our findings are. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has a hypertonic pelvic floor, as in too much activity through there, and they're hypersensitive, then I would probably focus maybe a little bit more on things like breathing techniques, trying to encourage oh, relaxation. Um, there is um, there, there is some, some work in hypopressives. Um, that, the reason, what, what does that mean? Just say Sorry, so yeah, so hypopressives, <laughs> I'm in my own little work. <laughs> Um, hypopressives are, it's a, a breathing technique that basically it's all about your diaphragm and how your pelvic floor moves within the abdominal cavity effectively. It's so fascinating, isn't it? That you it can is, actually connect the two and feel things happening in your pelvic floor oh, with your breath. It's amazing. Have you tried it? And very briefly, but I've not yeah. done any kind of significant training or practice in it. So uh, it's, yeah, please feel free to elaborate. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a whole host of training in itself around hypopressives. Oh, yeah, sure. and some physios prefer to use them more than others I suppose it's like everything some people find them more effective um I keep quite an open mind with treatment to be honest and I will quite happily use it in practice and I do find so basically with hypopressives what it's drawing in on is just basically how all of your uh how your pelvic floor works with your diaphragm and works with all of you know I suppose all of those muscles I think that also the muscles through the spine are partly involved and it's how when you breathe, how your pelvic floor lifts and lowers. And it's not an actual active contraction that we'd be doing when we think mm -hmm. about doing our pelvic floor muscles. It's more actually just the natural lift and lower that you will get because of the pressure within your abdominal area. So 
that's something that I would go through with someone quite a bit in clinic because as you can imagine some people are like what I don't really understand that <laughs> and it takes a lot of time to take a little bit of work however you can then sort of incorporate your relaxation which we know is really important with any sort of pain and um, particularly if you get, get any heightened pain for a long period of time um that's yeah a whole another area of patience so to throw in. yeah if somebody really struggles with stress or anxiety and they're constantly in like a fight flight mode mm. um can people hold their stress in their pelvic floor um, does that ever happen uh, yeah i mean i don't see i think we can hold we all hold tension in different ways that's what i'm curious about and i think it depends what that stress and anxiety is about mm -hmm. so for example if it stems back from when they might be younger and if there's any been anything like sexual abuse mm -hmm. or you know even things like fgm unfortunately it does you know it does still happen so just for everybody's benefit yes with FGM. female genital mutilation mm -hmm. and it's more common within certain cultures yeah. so we just have to be a little bit mindful of people's backgrounds because if there is that in their background it could be that they have more tension around that area just because of previous experience mm -hmm. i suppose um so yeah that that I suppose it can, but yeah. when you think about it. Okay. Um, but I think we always think of like stress and anxiety, we tend to hold it around to our shoulders more, don't we, and our necks. But... I, I know a lot of people that hold, hold it in their bum muscles. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people hold it in their bum muscles. So, yeah, curious as to whether it's some, an area that people commonly hold their tension. So. Yes, yeah. But yeah, so, you know, I suppose it's looking at the cause of the pudental neuralgia and whether it's coming from the soft tissues, mm -hmm. whether it's coming from the position, for example. Um, like compressive position or if it's becoming coming from the trauma and then you guide your treatment really more on that so you can use soft tissue techniques um, there has been some more research particularly this year actually that's been coming out about um, nerve stimulation pudendal nerve nerve stimulation which is really interesting to read about and actually for pudendal neuralgia I think it's shown to be quite effective so we'll watch this space oh, okay. things it's not something that I do at the, at the moment but who knows in time we'll see yeah, where we go yeah. as the research develops exactly. and a little bit more mainstream. Exactly. And um, yeah, I think it's um it opens up another window for this these group of patients, really, if you know it's sort of more common. Yeah. Um so we've kind of talked about a, a lot of the stuff around it and treatments and what can make it better and worse. And I just kind of want to bring it back a little bit to some of the things that you can speak to your consultant about if you're going for an arthroscopy or um that you've kind of resonated with any of these conversations or if it's particularly something that you might be concerned about, or you know somebody else that's been through it and you don't want to go through it either. There are different research tactics out there at the moment that are not necessarily mainstream, um, but there's a lot of research around different ways that they're trying to reduce the compression from um, arthroscopies on that perineal post that sits between your legs. So I would just like to let people know that there's a couple of things out there. There's something called the pink pad. Um, and it's basically a mat that goes on the table that you're in for surgery and it increases the friction, which means that they can put a little bit of traction on your leg and be able to get that separation from the ball and the socket um, without having to have the post. Um, so because it, you're more sticky to the tables so that you can get that traction without having to have that there. 
So that's something to consider and ask whether your surgeon is currently using something like that or whether they have any other of these other options. Um, the next one is that on top of the perineal post, there are cushions that are designed to basically have a gap. So they will go into the groin and then they will have a little gap through, like in bicycle seats, right, where they've, they've got gaps to be able to reduce that pressure. Yeah. Um, so there are cushions that are being used now to be able to reduce that compression. Um, but again, it won't be with everybody, so ask your consultant. Um, and then there is another tactic that they're using um, about just putting you in a Trendelenburg position when you're in. So Trendelenburg, we don't talk about it probably too much on my page, but when you're standing, you can't really see me here at the moment, but if you take my hip height here and you stand on one leg, and you don't have the right strength. Do you hear that click? I did. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't manage to keep that level of your pelvis through that strength and stability, whatever the reason. That position there is called your Trendelenburg. So the research that I've been reading basically shows that if they are putting people in a Trendelenburg position to try and create that opening of the hip position, that if you put 15 degrees of Trendelenburg, it reduces... Um, the the pressure on the perineal post by forty six percent. Oh wow! So you still have the post, but yeah. putting in that Trendelenburg position reduces the pressure. Yeah, forty six percent. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, ten degrees is like twenty eight um twenty eight percent reduction. Yeah. So it's still really significant. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just to open the conversation with your healthcare team about the possibilities of having those things done so if you know you're having a label label repair yeah. um, and you're going in you can ask what's the situation I don't I'd rather reduce my chances of getting you done definitely and I think as well if you do get it um and it, you know you're finding that it's not settling then do seek help and you know whether you send a question to Laura or myself um or if you can find a local pelvic health physio I would definitely um seek a little bit more support with it because the longer it's left, the harder we know that these these things are to to improve. So, um, so yeah, I definitely say to think just a little bit outside of the box if it doesn't settle. Don't ignore it. Don't put it in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have covered um a lot of the stuff about pediatric neurology that we wanted you to, and the other topic that we wanted to cover is menopause. Now you've already touched on some really good stuff about that already. Yeah. But I just wondered if we could pick your brains a little bit more about menopause. Okay. Yeah. So I am 36 now. Um and I had yeah, I was about to say 35. Um but yes, I have had a button now 36. So I have not really considered menopause in my life at the moment unfortunate enough to have not had to consider it yeah however on conversations with people I'm starting to learn that actually there can be symptoms coming in from a lot younger than I expected so it brings into question what is what is menopause what is perimenopause what are we looking out for for signs and symptoms that we might be then able to relate to some of the joint pain mm. and stuff that you talked about earlier yeah, so I suppose in summary, um, so perimenopause can start from your mid-30s. So, Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, it's something that, you know, until I researched into it more, I definitely wouldn't have thought in my 30s that I could be at a point where I might start to get these perimenopause symptoms. Yeah. So it can start from your mid-30s. It can start earlier if you have, um, like, pelvic surgery such as hysterectomy anything where you know obviously they remove your ovaries mm -hmm. that can what well, now that's class what we call like a, a surgically induced menopause 
Um, but that should, if somebody goes through that, they should automatically be offered HRT and they go through the consultants. There's a little bit more structure. Um, when you're mid-30s, you may not necessarily even think about it, let alone start, if you start to get symptoms, think, oh, it could be menopause. Exactly. So you're still young, right? I mean, <laughs> 50s the new 30, right? So I think, um, yeah, so I think that that's important to know is that it can start from your mid-30s. That's a, a normal age mm -hmm. to break start. Now, obviously, the average age for menopause itself is... 51, I think they say. Um, yeah, that's the point when they say, yeah, most women will have gone through it. Um, however, that doesn't mean... Oh, so that's the start or the end? That's, well, this is the thing. Menopause can be a continuum. <laughs> it's not necessarily, oh, you get to 51 and then that's it. So you can get menopause. You've got, I was sort of in two sections. You've got perimenopause and then you've got postmenopause. Now, in perimenopause, your periods will be a bit irregular and you'll start to get symptoms like you can get joint pains you can get electric shock symptoms into your legs uh you can get dry hair dry skin dry nails bitter nails um brain fog all these things that can come with menopause you can get that in perimenopause when you get to 50 well they say 51 on average that's mm -hmm. the average no it's not for everyone some people in their 40s some people are later than that but that's on average so we'll work with that and but people women can get symptoms for up to eight years after and you're classed as post-menopause when your periods have stopped you haven't had a period for less than right yeah so if you haven't a period had a period for over 12 months then you're classed as post-menopausal and right. um, but women can still get all these symptoms which is lovely let's just add that into the things sure. that we're more likely to get and experience <laughs> in life so yes, yeah, so you can get symptoms. I think on average they say about eight years after. So it take you up, what like 58, 59, something like that. However, you know, that's very that's just that's just a very small box. There are lots of people that don't fit that box. Um, and some people do experience symptoms much longer after that. So yeah, so that's I suppose the, the scope for perimenopause post-menopause and what sort of age you might start to think about it mm -hmm. maybe okay <laughs> thank you because that definitely clears some stuff up for me that I was not aware of so um you mentioned HRT yeah. as part of a treatment for going through any stage of those symptoms I would imagine but um at what stage do you think HRT could be beneficial when we're talking specifically about the joint pain stuff that we're talking about today and is it beneficial risks benefits that kind of yeah so so yeah so um there's been a lot more research recently that's now coming out more with hrt because there's been a lot more i suppose medium and, and awareness about it which is great so um we tend to find so if you have say an average person not someone with a hip pathology mm -hmm. as well but obviously that's going to then feed into it so um, about seven out of ten women will get joint muscle pains that high yeah yeah, yeah. It's this is why I was so excited to have this conversation today. I'm learning so much. Yeah, yeah, it's that amount of money. So this is why now when I sit in my musculoskeletal clinic and I've got 20 minutes, if I have somebody around an age that's menopausal and I'm looking through their history thinking that loads done and they've been through physio and nothing's working, yeah. I then question them on, well, is it are you menopausal? What, what are your periods like? And and actually, when we then start talking into it, it might appear that actually, yes, they haven't had a period for quite a long time now. Um, and their symptoms started randomly. And also, I think the thing with hormonal pain is that it's not, it doesn't really have a pattern. So like our musculoskeletal pain, we're like, oh, well, this hurts when you sit or this hurts when you stand. And 
there's, I suppose, that really clear presentation a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas with hormonal pain, it's very variable and there's no real trigger. It can sort of flare up, settle, flare up, settle. And so I think that's, it's just trying to get that really clear questioning and history. Um, but yes, HRT in itself, I have many times now in when I'm working in doctor surgeries and primary care, if that's something they haven't considered, I will have a bit of a discussion with them about HRT because from researching into it, if I had a choice of taking it, I'd take it. You would? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, there's so a lot of a personal kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I would. And I think it's because the the risks of taking HRT, obviously the biggest thing is like breast cancer. That's a, a big thing. Um, and that all started from, from years ago, from something that came out in the media. And I think there's a lot of scaremongering around it. And it's, right. it's definitely something we have to be aware of. But actually, the research now that's coming out is showing that the risk is a lot less. So the biggest cause of the higher incidence of women with death in the UK is heart disease and dementia. They're the two biggest, one of the two biggest things. And actually, the effect that hormones has on that and it's quite significant like it? when you read into it it just makes sense you think actually that makes sense in science and physiology so I want to ask so many questions <laughs> I'm sure that there's going to be some that are video related I'm sure there's going to be some that are more general but yeah you're sparking so many questions I know. So we'll write down maybe come to address it another time um yeah, yeah. yeah sorry no 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 so um so yeah so I think you've just got to weigh up the risks and benefits and yeah, I would always then obviously chat to the doctors, get the patient to book in with the doctor, have a chat with them about it. Um, and I've had some women that have started taking HRT and their joint pains have gone. Wow. And they're literally like, I feel like a new woman, I feel like I'm 25 again. And maybe we could all do a little bit of it. But um, but yeah, it can make that. And you know, they've been through all these avenues and it could be something, something as simple as that, effectively. So I think it's definitely worth questioning into it. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you do have somebody who has had previous hip surgery or has hip pathology that might restrict their movement and cause more stiffness they will they will get more stiffness after menopause because the joints aren't as well lubricated the estrogen will help to lubricate the joints so hrt has definite definite benefits when it comes to specifically talking about joint pain yeah, yeah. Um, that some of um, the our audience might be considering um, but it's always important for us to say it's you've got to be considered as an individual you've yeah. got to weigh up the risks and benefits for you and your lifestyle and always talk it through with your healthcare provider definitely <laughs> always seek help if you're unsure always seek help because dr google can come up with a whole host of things oh blimey that's <laughs> not going to do that um but yeah so they're, they're the kind of things that i definitely wanted to cover for menopause and i know that there's lots of other questions oh very quickly there was one more that i just wanted to actually recover from um, somebody that mm -hmm. came through on instagram can the trauma of the surgery induce menopause? So there's no there's no research to suggest it. Okay. And it's not something that I have seen in clinic. Obviously, if it's pelvic surgery for like a hysterectomy, mm -hmm. or, um, that that would induce early menopause. But if you're talking hip surgery and arthroscopies, mm -hmm. there isn't research showing any of that. And I suppose when you think about the science of menopause and hormones and how it all works. I wouldn't be able to really say, well, actually, maybe there's a small link there somewhere. Like, it's just trying to work out the science behind it because research, you know, we always need more research for lots of different things. That's how they find things out. But um, at the moment, there isn't anything. Um, and it's not something that I regularly would see in clinic. Cool. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Doris. So um, I hope this has been interesting for people to hear about. And again, I'm hoping that it's sparking some questions um, that you might be able to continue to ask or to speak about with your healthcare professional team. But yeah, if you've got more stuff that you want to know, um, we're open to doing another follow-up podcast to answer those questions. So thank you very much for watching and listening. And thank you so much for thank your you. time today. We've been chatting to us about this. Oh, stuff. Lovely. You're welcome. <laughs>